The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to the Double X Gap Fest for Thursday, November 16th. I'm Hannah Rosen, host of NPR's Invisibilia. In the New York studios, we have June Thomas, managing producer of Slate Podcasts. Hi, June. Hey, Hannah. And Noreen Malone of New York Magazine. Hi, Noreen. Hi, Hannah. So um, before we get going, I have a um, point of gratitude for you, June. A point of gratitude. Um, wow. Yeah, a point of gratitude, a thank you, as we say in English. <laughs> I <laughs> I had kind of a like a just a crap week just oh. having to do with not being able to make this story I'm trying to make oh. yield mm-hmm. to my will, you know, it's just, <laughs> yes. just creative, creative frustration. You, yes. you guys know all about it. Yes. And the, but the great creative high point of my week was American Vandal, <gasps> which you recommended. Yes. I'd been avoiding until you recommended it a couple of weeks. That is really my kind of show. I mean, that is just like a work of parody genius. I mean, Total. who thought to make a show about a guy vandalizing cars with dicks? And then it's just so great. So and, great. I know there's like a point at maybe like episode I don't know, five or six, where you're like, this is just like cereal, only maybe it's better. And <laughs> stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Did, um, yeah, anyway. Dylan is a, you know, every generation needs its Dylan. You yes. know, like Fast Times at Ridgemont High, he's yes. he's like ours, like our slacker, lovable misfit. And he's that actor an was character. so good. So it took, he was like, he completely inhabited that character. Yeah. Anyway, so listeners, I highly recommend it. It's such a pleasure. <laughs> All right. Well, today on our show, we are going to continue our discussions of sexual harassment with two case studies, very different ones. First, Roy Moore, the candidate in Alabama, who was accused of sexually molesting, hitting on, I'm not sure what the right verb is, uh, teenage girls. The point is that the girls were quite young. And then Louis C.K., the great comedian of our age, a very complicated case study in sexual harassment. And finally, for a break from sexual harassment, we are going to talk about Amy Sedaris's new show, At Home with Amy Sedaris, which is kind of a parody of Martha Stewart, Gwyneth Paltrow, Nigella Lawson, like every kind of show that women are supposed to like to watch and very odd. Looking forward to talking about that. And June, can you tell us about our Slate Plus segment today? I sure can. On our Slate Plus segment this week, we'll be asking, is the Shalane Flanagan effect sexist? The New York Times had a piece this weekend about how distance from the Shalane Flanagan, who won the New York Marathon, has been a team mom to the to America's female distance runners. And that's a concept that you never that's a concept that you never hear bruited when we're talking about male runners. And so we're going to talk about whether that's a sexist expectation. And if you're not a Slate Plus member and you'd like to hear these segments, go to slate.com slash XX Plus to start a two-week trial membership. Should we also... Do you think I'm the team mom of the of the podcast? Am I the team oh, mom? Oh, I thought I was the team mom. Damn it. I was wondering. Who you guys are both my mom? mother. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I would have done so well. Um I just want to mention, too, that before we get going, um, that at the end of the year, we'll be doing another call-in show. And so, listeners, if you have any Is It Sexist dilemmas for us, or if you just have any questions, really, uh, that you'd like answered, please give us a call at 929-266-8195. 929-266-8195. Leave us a message, and maybe we'll answer your question on the air. Also, listeners, if any of you want to make us T-shirts that say hashtag Teen Mom, <coughs> we would appreciate that. <laughs> okay. 
Let's begin. Roy Moore, running for a special election seat in Alabama Senate, was recently accused by several women. We're now up to five in The Washington Post of sexual misbehavior when they were teenagers. The stories involved him picking them up, taking him to their house, fondling them in different ways. These women have come forward publicly and used their names after uh, after much uh, many discussions with The Washington Post. Roy Moore has denied it, is continuing to deny it putting the Republican Party in a very, very queasy position. Now, I got to say, part of the reason I wanted to discuss this is that it it really has a feel of we're at the edge of the world, this case. Um, It really does. I mean, let's talk about the particulars. The the particulars of the things that he's accused of doing are pretty amazing. So he was in his 30s when when he's accused of doing this. Um, And either of you want to describe so I can stop talking about exactly, you know, just just give a sense of what these allegations look like and how old these women are. Right. So he was in his 30s and he was the district attorney. Um, I feel like that's another quite important point. Uh, And the the most recent case that I've heard about is a pretty exemplary one. It's a it's a young woman who I believe was 16. She's not the youngest woman or now woman, then girl who's involved in this. Um, But she worked as a waitress at um, like a diner type of thing. And Roy Moore would come and kind of pay attention to her. And she was very flattered by it. He would compliment her hair, et cetera, et cetera. He even signed her yearbook, um, signed it Roy Moore DA, um, just, just for future incrimination purposes, I guess. Um, and then one day he offered to give her a ride home. And instead of sort of turning towards the highway, he pulled over to, I think, a um, sequestered parking lot and... Um, began essentially groping her, she says. And um, she says she resisted. And at the end, he said something to the effect of, well, you're a child. I'm the DA. No one will believe you. Um, and then, so there are a few other, and she she eventually told her mother decades later, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and there are a few other cases like this. Um, there, it has also now emerged that he was actually banned from the local mall for hitting on teenage girls so aggressively um it's pretty hard to get banned from a mall i would say like that that he must have been uh he must have stuck out yeah. am i am i forgetting anything in the litany of no Roy i mean Moore? i think just essentially like you know one of the first ones to come forward was a woman who at the time was 14 who who he hit on when at the courthouse so yeah. he was a 32 year old oh, yes. ada and like there's just you know we we often talk about power differentials and you know that it's not about sex or it's about power and like this is just such a classic example of like this girl who you know was kind of in trouble and and this was this you know here was this guy who's an official of the court who you know in some ways her future depended on and 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 she was there with her mother right she was there with her mother yeah and his excuse what was it he had asked the mother for permission yeah he one of the things okay that's really important <laughs> yeah. that's really important yeah. that part of really important because it explains entirely the way that the, the the way that Alabama Republicans who have continued to support him not all Alabama Republicans have threaded the needle is his line that he said on Hannity on Fox that he 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 cannot he can't remember any case where he didn't ask permission from the mother <laughs> that is code language it sounds utterly absurd 
to us and to many, many people. It sounds utterly absurd, but it is code in certain evangelical circles, not all evangelical circles, but certain evangelical circles for a certain kind of sanctioned courtship that I think in his twisted mind, he he that's how he justified himself, that he was actually following some kind of Christian Christian orders, um, Which the Christian is what? orders being, yeah. Which is what? Okay. So Catherine Brightbill, who was of this world, um, and I wrote a book about this world. It's not all evangelicals. All evangelicals describes, you know, a huge chunk of America. This is, this is homeschool, sort of, we used to call them fundamentalist Christians. People don't use that term anymore, but this is pretty strict evangelicals. And, there was a culture there, um, and, 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 and you can read Brightbill's, uh, really great op-ed in the LA Times. She describes this culture of a kind of Christian sanction of older men courting younger women in for what them was kind of a protective way, a kind of patriarchal protected way. You could be in your 30s and you would ask the mom's permission and then you would, the teenage daughter would be kind of given to you. And there was apparently a famous couple who walked around and, um, and gave lectures about this. Um, and, and it's, 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 you know, to us kind of horrifying. It's, it's handmaid's tale. You know, it's, it's a, it's a vision and a sense of women that we don't subscribe to at all anymore. Like they're breeders, they're property of the men. Um, and by the way, there are, there are, there are not a huge number of child marriage in the U.S., but there are something like 60,000. Like, people have written about this. There are organizations that are dedicated to stopping child marriage. It is a thing in the U.S., mm-hmm. not just among Christians, among some strict Muslims. Like, there there are organizations that are still fighting to take child marriage laws off the books in certain places if you have your parents' permission. Mm-hmm. That was kind of a long speech about Christians, but it does. It just gives you a window. Like, they've threaded the need, the way Alabamans have, the way he has... It used to be like you could say almost anything and declare yourself a Christian martyr. Like it could always be like, oh, the outside world is accusing me of X thing. And but they but they're just out to get me. But not not like not child molesting. Like that was the one thing that was the one line, even in prison, wherever you were. That That's why I feel that's what I mean by the edge of the earth. Yeah. That was the line that you were never supposed to cross. You know, well, like you could say anything. The liberal media, I cheated on my wife. They're out to get me. They're telling lies about me. But not this. You well, know? That, and that's the thing that ultimately I have issues with, because Roy Moore, I mean, he is a piece of shit. Like this is a guy who has, you know, there was a really, really interesting interview that Isaac Chotner did with a journalist from like the Alabama newspaper group um, that's kind of most easily kind of defined as AL.com. It's, it's a whole group of regional Alabama newspapers. And he basically said, you know, he, he kind of went over the things that Roy Moore is famous for. You know, he put up his Ten Commandments uh whatever monument even though he you know he knew full well that it was unconstitutional he was removed and lost his job over it exactly. and put a, put a bigger one exactly right. lost his job over it put a bigger one then he was still reelected even after being thrown off to the Alabama Supreme Court and then he again sacrificed himself because he absolutely refused to um to permit gay marriage to permit same sex marriage even after the Supreme Court made that ruling because he has some absolutely vile views about LGBTQ people and is, you know, just doesn't believe that gay people are human, basically. They certainly are not, uh, you know, 
They don't have human rights. They don't have civil rights. I mean, this is a guy who's got some really grotesque views on a lot of things. He also doesn't think that Muslim Americans have the same civil rights as Christian Americans. I mean, he's just, there are so many things. And here's the thing that really bothers me about this. He's been, you know, he was elected multiple times as a judge. He didn't get to be the governor of Alabama, which he's, which he attempted. He didn't win that election, but he, you know, won this election. He won the, um, he won the primary against Luther Strange, the, you know, the establishment candidate, the candidate that had Donald Trump's backing. He still won. The voters of Alabama have had no problem with some grotesque views that he has espoused, really grotesque views. You know, to me, this is the greatest shame. It's like it's the citizens of Alabama as much as Roy Moore. Roy Moore is an edge case, but the people of Alabama have voted for him over and over. And might again. Might again, yeah. He's not going to back down. And, you know, it's, uh, one of my favorite podcasts is the 538 podcast, mostly for Claire Malone, Noreen Malone's sister. Shout out, Claire. Shout out to Claire. And she made a really good point on this week's episode, which is that, you know what, you know, Mitch McConnell and all these mainstream Republicans are opposing Roy Moore and they're using this grotesque, admittedly, you know, incident uh, as they're, you know, Mitch McConnell believes the women, all of this. Well, you know what, they also don't want Roy Moore in the Senate. He's not going to be a good Republican. They'd almost rather have a Democrat because the Democrat will be, you know, be out at the next election. And he, Roy Moore's not going to vote with them. They're probably the difference between how a Democrat from Alabama would vote and how Roy Moore would vote is not that different. He's not going to be that much more of a support to them. So nobody wants him except the people of Alabama who keep voting for him. Well, he, yeah, he's even like fundraising off of this, yeah. right? That he's being attacked not just by the left, but by the establishment Republicans and this place, his, you know, sort of Breitbart base. Um, the The kind of upsetting thing to me, so I... I follow Breitbart on Twitter because I'm a journalist and I need to know what's happening. Um, and they have just been having a field day with all of the sexual assaults and harassment violations or accusations that are coming down among liberal men, right? Like, uh-huh. like Breitbart could not be more delighted about Harvey Weinstein and Louis C.K. and, and the sort of Hollywood grossness. But this, you know, Roy Moore is a candidate of the Breitbart wing of the Republican Party, if you even want to call it the Republican Party at this point. And there is no sort of condemnation there. It it just exposes the pure hypocrisy of uh, the moralistic, you know, the lack of moralistic stances, I suppose, in, in that in that um, particular political sphere. It's like, uh, you know, the the men of the left are not looking so great right now, but the left is reckoning with it. And the right seems to be unwilling to do that, at least in this specific case and at least in this wing of the party. Well, here's what I wonder about. And this is where I get into the, you know, the state of our nation. Do you guys think that this story could have unfolded this way even two years ago? See, my feeling is like it, 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 we have reached a point where you can create alternate realities. We all know about those so, so hard that even a story like this, where you have five women on the record who are Trump voters, et cetera, you know, which unfolded as a, as a 
totally respectable news story. You can't get people to you can just build an alternate universe and mm-hmm. ask people to live inside it, which is what Breitbart does. So you're like, saying you're specialty. saying he would have been gone by now two years ago. Yes. Oh. I think this a few years ago that because it's child molesting and because that's the line that we don't cross and because none of us understand this, like whatever the hell he's talking about, ask permission from <laughs> that doesn't make sense to anybody but like 20 people, you know, he would have been gone. Um, but now people have have gotten into the habit of walking into alternate realities so hard that they believe them. You know, well, so this like weird <clears throat> phone call that he made that this this sort of like political phone call. And this is like the weirdest part of the story <laughs> where uh, he had someone he, they, they're doing these fake robo calls where they 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 ask they pretend to be someone named Bernie Bernstein. Like how anti-Semitic is that? You know, offering to pay money to get dirt on Roy Moore. This, these are like we're not going to check the story, but we will publish it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like a it's like a it's like a really dumbass version of what a reporter would say. But it just shows you the mechanics of like if we build a world. And it's like just plausible enough people can live inside it. And that is freaky. Well, I mean, it's not just like it's been created. The the president of the United States, as you know, also builds it up six times a day. Every time he talks about fake news, he's essentially saying, don't believe the truth. Don't believe the newspapers. I mean, it's it's we shouldn't act like it's just some casual thing that's built up by people. It's it's been created by people in power who are who want power. I, for their ends. Yeah, and it's like put us on the defensive. I mean, this could not this story could not have been put together in a more exemplary way. We know that as journalists. Like the you know, the slow way they got these women to go on the record, the fact they got these women to use their names, like normally there is it would evidence be okay to from, be anonymous. Yeah, and that there's evidence from decades ago that, you know, if it was a setup, they started setting them up thirty eight years ago. <laughs> that yearbook. Yeah. But Hannah, to your point yeah. about whether this could have, you know, unfolded in quite this way. I keep thinking about the famous Edwin Edwards line. Edwin Edwards was the sort of irascible uh, governor of Louisiana. Maybe he was a senator at one point. Whatever, like old school Louisiana poll, who famously said that the only way he wouldn't be reelected was if he was caught in bed with a dead girl or a live boy. And it's sort of a funny, dark joke, right? Mm -hmm. But also maybe says something about the values of the Deep South um, that... You know, yes, sexual scandal might be a bump in the road, but, uh, you know, Roy Moore was acting as a heterosexual man. He was, you know, just going after young, nubile women. And on some level, I think that might resonate with certain voters. It's not as bad within, you know, certainly the value system that you've described as other things might be considered to be. Like, I, I, Maybe I'm so the women have to be eight, like they have to be like children. To be according to Edwin children. Edwards, no, they have to be dead. Yeah, like, I mean the fact that he signed that yearbook. You know, I mean at the time he was not. You know, he was a, he was an attorney. Like he he clearly had no thoughts that there was anything untoward about it. Yeah, I mean, doesn't mean he was right, but that clearly was his mindset. And you know, yeah. it's also as we've been, you know, what seems like now forever. Although I think it's probably been like six weeks. You know, this this sort of you know, faucet forceful, this faucet force of revelations about sexual misconduct. You know, this is different because it's not a workplace situation. It's an electoral situation, which means that we're talking about, you know, the people who are deciding are the voters. And, you know, in all elections, just like, you know, just a little bit more than a year ago, uh, when Donald Trump had these revelations made against him, when there was tape, when there was audio, 
um, you know, it was an election. So people make the decision like, well, this guy is not, I don't, it's not quite the same with Roy Moore because it seems like a lot of people are sticking with him. But people, you know, they don't just think, well, I don't know if I would hire him to like be work for my company. But, well, I have to decide between him and a Democrat. And, you know, and it's just a weird form of how we adjudicate and how we respond to sexual misconduct when it's an election situation or a political situation. It's weird. Well, then people were literally comparing him to Joseph. This was yeah. my, like, favorite slash least favorite Person. Moment. Person. Okay. One, Person. Okay. That so an sick. Alabama, I think, state legislator said, well, you know, there are lots of biblical couples that are like this. You know, there's, there's of course, Mary and Joseph. Mary was a teenage girl. Joseph was an adult carpenter. And my favorite tweet came from um, Slate's own Gabe Roth, who was like, you know the point of your religion is that he didn't fuck her. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know that, right? Um, which is, I think, a very good point that, that Christians all the world over should consider as they think about the Roy Moore case. If any of our listeners are from Alabama, send us an email, doublexgapfest at slate.com, or better yet, call into our next call-in show and ask us a question that helps us figure out what is going on in Alabama. That number is 929-266-8195. Let's move on to our next topic, Louis C.K., an entirely different case study. But first, a word from a sponsor. All right. Louis C.K., a very, very complicated case study of sexual harassment. So there have been rumors circulating about him for years. Uh, there was even a short story in Gawker that did not meet the usual Washington Post journalistic <laughs> standards about him masturbating in front of other women, uh, other comedians uh, who he invited into his room. And now those rumors are confirmed. I would say no one is surprised. Right. Wouldn't you say that? Yeah. I think people I, mean, are, I think people in America are surprised. Oh, yeah. I think within the comedy community, people are not surprised. Yeah, I mean, when we talked about One Mississippi, we talked about how, you know, there's a scene where a guy is masturbating in front of someone and, and how that was a reference to Louis C.K. I mean, we talked about it on our podcast. That's true. So maybe if we're saying people aren't surprised, because it is true that in all the female, all the there are a lot of women reviewers who were asked to write about this, a lot of them, both at Slate, at the New York Times. You feel like everyone who was writing about the Louis C.K. case was female. There was a sense of disillusionment um, that we basically had allowed ourselves to deeply admire Louis C.K., even though it seemed like in his comedy he was highly self-aware of the perverse sexual dynamics between men and women, uh, enacted them and talked about them all the time. And like maybe the nub of his comedy was about why, what it's like to be trapped in a, in a kind of male body with its gross impulses. Um, so we knew that about him, right? I mean, he did have a great self-awareness of these issues. Right. And yeah. I think that's what people loved about him most, which is why well, I've been a little bit puzzled by the reaction to this. Um, I don't know if you guys feel the same way. Everyone is sort of like, it's so surprising. Everything looks different now. And it does, but it also doesn't. Like he, okay, so he actually acted on this stuff that he was talking about. I, I guess that does make a difference. Um, and I do certainly feel revolted in a way that I didn't buy his comedy before. But it's not it's not as surprising as everyone seems to think. And like, everyone's like, oh, he, he, you know, it was such a like, um, 
you know, he was so overconfident. He thought no one would ever call him on it. That's why he made this movie, I Love You, Daddy. That's sort of a riff on Woody Allen. That's why he made all these jokes about masturbation. To me, it's like, no, this man wanted to get caught. He like something about his psychosexual desire is that he needs to be shamed. You know, he wasn't he, he in these encounters. He was masturbating in front of the women. He's done comedy bits about how masturbation is embarrassing and gross and like this sort of disgusting act. And yet that was what he wanted to do in front of women. He wants to be humiliated on some level. I think he's been... He's been like tempting fate for years on purpose. Yeah, it sure seems that That's way now, an, doesn't it? That is a really interesting view. So maybe the quest, maybe then the discussion to have is in that fine line, the discussion about us. Like, what were we thinking? We, the viewers <laughs> of Louis C.K., what did we think was going on in on the screen or what did we convince ourselves was going on? Well, I think what we convinced ourselves was going on maybe was that he was the thing that was admirable about him was that he confessed to these horrible impulses and then worked them out Mm -hmm. in a way that we found admirable, which was creatively like here is an evolved man because this evolved man is able to like see himself clearly and turn it into beautiful creative work, which says something about our culture and gender dynamics. Is that the trick? We, we, is that what, is that the story we told ourselves about who he was and why we could admire him? Is that it? Was it a story? I mean, I think that that was the situation, but it was the situation. You know, I mean, it. it I don't know that that was like a fable that we convinced ourselves of. That was true. Also, we now know for absolute sure was true. Is that he was doing this this sexual act as well? I guess the fable was that we convinced ourselves he was that instead of. Instead of actually inflicting himself in this perverse way on actual women who would be actually wounded, both spiritually and professionally, by what he was doing, we thought he was doing that instead. In other words, he was he had he had figured out a way to deal with his perversion that was not harming other people, as opposed to he had continued to kind of dive into his self-involved perversion in a way that allowed himself to stay completely blind to the consequences of his actions on other people, which is not an evolved way to deal with your shit. <laughs> well, he also, I think the specifics of it were such that, um, first of all, he wasn't saying I, Louis C.K., am specifically, you know, this kind of person. He was saying men are like this, right? And not in the like, not in the hacky, like, uh, you know. Men are like this. Right, exactly. Not, like this. not that kind of way. He was sort of like, he almost seems to be thinking about I think what was fascinating for women in particular, for me, was that he um, had this deep insight into the sort of strangest corners of the male psyche. Um, And yet also ultimately uh, express things from almost a female point of view. Like there's a famous bit that people have been talking about in the last week um, where he said, you know, I don't understand why, why men date women. Or, or by women date men, you know, men are the biggest threat to women. Like, it's like going to a safari and saying, well, maybe this line will be nice, you know? Um, and that, I think, re- resonated with a lot of women who were like, oh, this is cool. This guy is like, he understands a little bit of how we feel. And then this, of course, has a much darker tenor when you think about... He was a lion. He was he was a lion. Who Wait, but you thought, so you watching that, you allowed, you were thinking he's better than his character. Like, it's like the Lena Dunham thing. It's like he's better than the person that he is portraying on his show. But it turns out he's worse than the person that he's portraying on his show. Because, in fact, the person on his show has a lot of, like, sticky scenes. <laughs> like, 
when when he when he I mean, there's a lot yeah. of scenes where he like pushes a girl into the closet and she says, you're not even good at, 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 at rape or when he's about to masturbate and she's like, don't masturbate. I'm not asleep yet. Like he really does play these things out in his in his show. Um, but you somehow figured that because he could see all this clearly, he was better than the person he was portraying. And it turns out he's worse. I guess on in some, some ways. on some level, I didn't explicitly think it through. Like, I know that that is a huge part of the Louis C.K. Um, narrative like he's a good guy he's a feminist guy he's a good dad he's like allowing these conversations to happen but i think i i liked louis ck and and like davis dana stevens wrote about on slate even had a little bit of a celebrity crush on louis ck um mostly because he was just really funny and subversive and it, in a in a way that i liked and i have to say that actually his show lost me the farther it got into sort of Ditto. like like we're gonna make a serious show about rape and gender dynamics i sort of <laughs> wasn't along for that right i just like jokes on tv um but but it, i think a lot of pe- for a lot of people he did represent this um this idea that you could be interesting and dark and yet still feminist and a man and, and that's an appealing combination and you could do that on mainstream television yes cable but you know his fx show was out there and you know viewable all over the world, certainly all over America. And it did feel like it was taking a certain sensibility wider than wider than could have been taken without that that uh, megaphone. Um, can I read you guys a bit of his apology? People did not like his apology on Twitter or elsewhere. Um, I thought it was relatively honest as these things go. Um, but this, there's a portion of it that I found interesting. He says it's about consent and power. And he says, these stories are true. At the time, I said to myself that what I did was okay because I never showed a woman my dick without asking first. Seems like, you know, <laughs> minimum. <laughs> Old-fashioned courtship. Can <laughs> I show you my dick? <laughs> Ask your mother first. Roy Moore. <laughs> yeah, going the old-fashioned way. Hi, he should have asked the mom if he could show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Gross>. <laughs> Which is also true. But what I learned later in life too late is that when you have power over another person, asking them to look at your dick isn't a question. It's a predicament for them. The power I had over these women is that they admired me. People didn't like that he wrote that. Yeah, you know, I don't like that he, that he wrote that either. That seems like and, – and I – I do think which that's, part the admired me part that seems like a very egocentric view of power. And then I went back and looked at the original New York Times story, and it seems like he was reacting to one particular line, one particular quote from one of these women, where she said, "You know, I admired his comedy." But he seemed to really seize on that and to like not think about the broader structural issues of comedy, where like he had power because he was already successful and he had this agent who you know was incredibly powerful in the field and repped all these other. Um, com- comedians and sort of had the keys to the kingdom. He didn't want to think that through. He just was sort of like the record was stuck on the they admired me, they admired me, which I thought is an interesting look into his psyche. But I, I'm with the people who are a little put off by that, Hannah. I, I don't, I don't know about this. No, I understand it now from what you're saying. I understand it now. It didn't, it failed to fully, it failed to grasp what the full context was, which is not that it wasn't about the kind of energy in the room at the moment. Like I'm kind of frozen in place because I admire you. So I'm going to watch you masturbate. It was fear that he wasn't reckoning with. Mm -hmm. It wasn't admiration. It was their fear that if they said anything, which turned out to be true, his agent, his powerful agent did actually talk, you know, tell these women not to tell the story. So, so, so the, so the sort of what he 
fail to reckon with was the bigger sort of structure of power. He's talking about the intimate dynamics, which is what he tends to see. But there was a bigger superstructure, which was supporting him, which he is not interested in and therefore doesn't talk about or doesn't doesn't see. Um, I mean, Katie, sorry. (coughs) Katie Wellman had a so sorry. (coughs) God. It's such a weird thing. I never have this problem when I'm not in a micro, when I'm not in this room. Anyway, apologies. Um, Katie Wallman had a good piece about these apologies generally, you know, which we've been talking about again now for several months of like terrible apologies. This was not a terrible apology. This was not Harvey Weinstein. This was not, you know, whatever we might have called whatever Roger Ailes or um, Bill Bill or Bill O'Reilly did. But, you know, as, as um, I'm so sorry, <clears throat> but as Katie pointed out, like pursuing consent isn't the same as receiving it. And there do seem to be, even when people like distanced, uh, even, you know, and again, this is a problem that he had for many years and that he apologized for, you know, like at least 10 years ago. So like, it wasn't like he's only realizing now that he's got this problem. He was doing this even while, you know, knowing that he shouldn't. Um is that he still doesn't seem to really understand the full significance of consent. Well, I was so interested in the fact that he had called up these women and yeah. apologized, which I don't think that any of these other men who've come out in this way have done. And, you know, Not I don't want to give him know. too much credit, but, yeah. but I think, you know, he, he at some point did reckon with this. And <clears throat> unfortunately, he apologized for the wrong thing to one of the yes. women, making it seem as if there are a number of these other incidents that are going to come out. But um, in one of those apologies, he said to one of these women, you know, I'm sorry, I used to misread people back then. And she was very, um, she didn't like that. She she felt, from what I gleaned from the article, she felt like he was saying, well, you were giving me signals, you know. Um, And she obviously bristled at that. But it is an interesting, that to me is... Maybe not this case, like, but but at the heart of some of these more gray area sexual harassment kind of things that we're hearing about right now, men who misreading situations seems to be a big part of it. And it was interesting to hear him use that as an excuse or or or, or an honest accounting of what he thought had happened. This this like, just he thought that they were consenting and they did not think that they were, you know. Yeah. Can I dig into that? This is I'm a little nervous about this part of the conversation, mm. but just let me have it with you guys because we're a safe space. <laughs> um, it's about safety, actually. So it's this is not about what happened or the facts about what happened. This is about what we want to happen in the future, like what world we want to build coming out of this. Because, mm. you know, I've, we've had these convulsions at NPR, where I work, at the New Republic, which we've talked about, where I used to work, then all out in the culture. I mean, it just feels so, so close right now. And it feels like the world that people... People are trying to build out of this is a world of absolute safety. Like we need absolute rules that govern these things. We need to know that you're safe. I mean, that came up over and over again in the in the meetings we had here. Like there just needs to be safety, and that's a totally important value. But but part of me actually wishes for a world where those women, where it becomes okay for those women in Louis C.K.'s room to say, like, if I think like future for my daughters, it's like. Put your fucking dick away. <laughs> I never said I wanted to see it and fuck you and leaves the room. Oh, like for sure. That, I don't necessarily want safety. I don't want them to be necessarily protected from everything. I want it to be culturally possible for women to be able to 
like, you know, it's the consent thing. It's that it's that it's that no series that I talked about that Caitlin Press did. Mm -hmm. It's like, I want to move to a world where of less pleasing, and where it's just socially acceptable and kind of culturally normed for women to be absolutely clear that this is fucked up. What's going on right here? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Not to be protected from it, just to be able to say that it's messed up. And, and I, put think, your dick away. I think that that is actually a roundabout way of wishing for safety because that ultimately would change the culture more than any kind of like HR rules for, for women to actually feel empowered to do that. I mean, I don't think anyone wants a world in which no one can flirt. No one can make a move on someone else. Like, um, but yeah, to, to, to just be incredibly clear about what is and isn't wanted, I think would be exciting if people felt like they could do that. Yeah, like his agent should be afraid of those women, you know, rather yes. than it be absolutely clear that they're going to be quiet and, mm-hmm. you know, and that he has absolute power over them. And that's just like the place of women and the place of men. He should just be afraid that like if somebody takes because, you know, they weren't working for him. I mean, lots of the women he did masturbate in front of were working for him. But these two particular women who were in the lead of the New York Times story were sort of fellow comedians at a club who he invited up to his room. So it's a little bit of a more complicated situation. His power over them was more diffuse than if they literally he was responsible for their salary you know um so but wait how do do we get to that point though if not through (sighs) these like you know talks about safety or whatever like how 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 do we want to get to that point and if men still think like i mean i agree completely with you hannah but at the same time like under what circumstances are men pulling out their dicks like that should not really be on the table the dick or the you know the thought of it like Yes, women should definitely be like, get rid of that thing. But why are men thinking that that's okay? And I realize it's it's not all men, but like, come on. I, I, honestly, I had a talk with a middle school friend of mine, my middle school friend, <laughs> and, she, and she and I discussed this. And it's like, you know, at 12 and 13 years old. They're already like, you know, my pants are so tight because my dick is pushing up against my pants. Wow. It's like there, there's a, just a certain sort of like, and it's a, it's not, there's nothing, there's no physical assault, but there is just kind of a, a sense of entitlement of like me putting my dick up in your space. Like, even mm-hmm. if it's just in words, like mm-hmm. she's, you know, they're 12 and 13 and it's just alarming to them. And that they, they may be somewhat curious about this, but they mm-hmm. don't, but there isn't a sense that the, the no, there's no female equivalent of that. There's no female equivalent of like, I have my period and my boobies are so big and that's why my shirt is so like, you can't imagine a middle <laughs> school girl saying that, yeah. you know? Um, so, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's just like a cultural problem. Sure is. Wait, did we just land on penises or a cultural problem? <laughs> <laughs> Yes. The possession of them, yes, yes. I mean, that's why readers. American Vandal is so brilliant because he's like a guy who draws dicks everywhere, and yet he's a totally sympathetic character. Somehow, you know? yeah. Oh boy! All right, so I need a, somebody give me a hopeful question to end that segment with, so our listeners do not leave us depressed with the idea of you know somebody's dick pushing against their adidas well I'm, I'm curious if we're going to be totally skeptical this is not a hopeful question but i'm <laughs> curious if we're going to be totally skeptical of comedians in the louis ck mode going forward like male comedians who wrestle with the darker parts of their psyche will we like has he ruined that kind of See, comedy I, I guess i just think in order to be at that level of what was the verb that you just used about it like wrestling, wrestling. to be wrestling there's always going to be like, oh, man, this guy 
He's so in touch. But don't we want comedians to like sort of in some ways be truth tellers about the dark parts of our psyche? Like, I mean, it's like we don't need comedy people to be saints. That's part of I mean, we don't want them to be this bad. Right. It is hurting other people. But I mean, it's it's an absolute. I think it's you can. I think you can totally reckon with your thing. It's just there's a two different things. You can wrestle with the dark parts of yourself creatively in any way that you want to. And we totally welcome it. You just can't actually make other people miserable in the world. Like those are different things. Like there are different kinds of self reckoning and sort of dealing with your own stuff. And we all know about them. And there's one layer of dealing with your stuff, which is self-involved. It's like talking about it all the time, creating stories about it. There's the next level of reckoning, which Lucy K is going to do in his dark home right now, which is what did my actions, you know, clearly the, all the men were avoiding part two, because in all the apologies, it's like, I didn't realize that what I was doing was causing uh, these women to be miserable on the heart. Like, they all say that. Yeah. And to us, it's like, you didn't, but they didn't, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah. Apparently. So that's part two, dudes. <laughs> all right. Get reckoning. Here we go. <laughs> Next week, we have to talk about unicorns and sunshine, okay? <laughs> a unicorn is really problematic with its horn. <laughs> Do girl yeah. unicorns have horns, too? <laughs> Are unicorns gendered? No, that's a good question. Well, oh my all God, these all questions and more we will tackle next week. <laughs> okay, so uh, let's move on to our next topic, a light and pleasant one, Amy Steris. But before that, a word from our second sponsor. Our next topic, At Home with Amy Sedaris, the new true TV show by the comedian Amy Sedaris about the joys of domesticity, but a parody of the joys of domesticity. This show makes fun of all of the things that we have been watching for decades and decades, we meaning women. Uh, Let's listen to a clip before we jump in where Amy Sedaris behaves, I guess, like a demented (laughs) Julia child, maybe. I have a very simple preparation for frying fish, a light dusting of flour, a little salt and pepper, and then to a hot skillet coated with olive oil. This recipe also works for chicken known as the fish of the ground. Now, these fillets are a little big for a single portion. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to cut them in half. Okay, there go. Oh, a dull knife, a cook's worst enemy. Dull knife, what am I going to do? Okay. Well, uh, this show is odd because it has the feel of Mr. Rogers in a way. It has this kind of slow music, as you hear, and sort of her rolling from segment to segment. Like, it's not a show of this era. Um, What did you guys think of it? I kind of loved it, but I I did find it, you know, I was it was interesting. We always look at a, a bunch of pieces and the reviews in this case are just the kind of the even the features of the profiles. There was this amazing similarity and it was this endless use of words like bizarre and uh, absurdist and, you know, demented. And all of those things are true. It is absolutely demented and bizarre and bananas. And it really made me laugh. But, uh, you know, it's like, I laughed out loud, which is not something I do very frequently, but it's also not a show that I would necessarily watch if we weren't <laughs> going to be talking about it. Even though it was it absolutely filled me with joy. I laughed, I loved it, but there's it's it's almost too odd. It's almost too odd to like make appointment television where maybe it was that also that I was watching alone. Maybe it's a 
thing that would be fun to watch with other people. I just don't know. What did you think? It had so many funny lines. Like yeah. I wrote down a few like cheese will work with you if you let it. You know, they're just they're just these moments of this absolute absurdity. It's funny. I was thinking about Maria Bamford's show when yes. I was watching her yes. show. And there's something sometimes so particular and so idiosyncratic about these shows. It's like the art form of creating a show that is truly and entirely yours, but mm-hmm. having it have more broad appeal seems to be like a really difficult one. I'm not saying it's more difficult for women than it is for men. This is no more true of the um, not Simon is it the, the Simon Rich show. You know that sometimes if a comedian has such a particular vision, um, it's it's just utterly bizarre when it gets translated onto the screen. I mean, the more interesting thing is like, what is she making fun of? Like, right. what is she making fun of about women? And it is, is it a gentle portrait? I mean, this is clearly an indulgence of women. Um, I, I, uh, I, just is, want, I just want to say before yeah. we go too much further that the Simon Rich show you were talking about, was that Man Seeking Woman? Yes. Okay. Yes. See, I yeah. don't... So the Simon... Man seeking women is also a very odd and particular mm-hmm. vision of a show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not sure that she is making fun. Ultimately, I mean, clearly, it is referencing, you know, cooking shows, homemaking shows, home makeover shows, crafting shows. It's it's kind of referring back, I think, to a different age, uh, to like local kind of, you know, these local shows, or maybe even like the the little bits on morning shows where they make things. But and so, yeah, it's kind of a parody and certainly she she goes to strange places. But you also get the sense that this really is her joy and her just like her. Yeah. That it's a heightened her, but it's it's her. I think. Yeah, I think she so she famously like loves to host this. She's written a couple of books about that. She clearly loves to craft. But I think she just has a totally different point of view on the point of crafting yeah. and creating worlds like it's not perfection like even so the sets are extremely elaborate on this it's this real um it's sort of 60s 70s kitsch including down to what she wears but it's just got some offbeat touches to Mm -hmm. it um and the crafts that she does i i sort of skipped around and watched she's out of order but i think in episode four she makes this cake um with nick kroll did you guys get this i I didn't watch four (laughs) yes it's like the most you know disgusting looking cake you could ever imagine and but but uh the setup is like how you get to the cake or she has these these kids like make these weird popsicle sticks with hair on them right like it's not anything you would ever want to display in your house and that is the point of like the sort of Martha Stewart craft thing is that you make the most perfect little thing to her it seems to be like okay what weird impulse inside my brain am i going to work out by like gluing these things together i think ultimately it's it's like an alternative view of the point of crafting yeah that's why she I think Julia Child is coming to my mind all the time, because what I mean, what she's she's not pushing back against necessarily sort of our indulgences and in viewing habits, because these no. days, like, what are people watching? People are not watching those kind of shows necessarily. They're watching like YouTube videos about how to do your makeup, perfectly, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. how to open a package. It's a slightly different vibe. The, the sort of vibe towards female beauty perfection is kind of directed in a different way right now. Um, but it is this, um, you know, Julia Child was famously like messy in her like she's before Martha Stewart, so she would like drop things or things wouldn't come out quite right. And she was totally cool with that. And she was six feet tall. And it has, you know, I bet she loves Julia Child if she's going to love anyone. Um, because it is it is like or or maybe it's almost like the mystery show, the Starley Klein show, where the point is it's about the 
it's like the fun of doing this weirdo craft and following that place rather than the thing itself and what the thing itself looks like. Because she often looks crazy in it, too. Which like is her fun. hair is crazy. Yeah. 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 But she also, yeah. I mean, she also, I was interested in the very first episode, she sort of is like, okay, I'm like, she she creates these narratives around why yes. she's crafting, which are kind of fun and actually like have a little bit of sly social commentary. So in the first episode, she's like, I'm making steak au poivre for one and because I am like happy alone and single by choice. And then she has someone come over and sort of like help her out and he comes on to her and he goes to the bathroom and she's like, and now I'm making a romantic dinner for two. Like just the, the you know, <laughs> that like when you cook or when you do something in your house that, that there is the sort of like fantasy element to why you were doing it that she plays with that idea too in a way that i think is kind of smart yeah she's very conscious of the fantasy and and it you know it's something that one of you said about her set which again in all the interviews she points out is kind of a version of her own apartment uh but i think i was like wow yeah i guess it is kind of an odd space but then when i think about like the set of where rachel ray does her uh, cooking yeah. like it's almost exactly the same like those are fantasies too which you know when you say that yeah of course they are they're these weird fantasies of cupboards full of food with with fantasy labels on them but she, you know so yes she is definitely referencing that but it is so demented that somehow the like wherever she's sticking the shiv is a little bit disguised yeah, but it's also making the fantasy exp- like it's making yes. the fact that it's a fantasy explicit as opposed to just like let's all just pretend that this is how my house looks like. Like my fantasy of the show when June said you might not go back to it like as appointment television, but my fantasy of the show is that whenever I was having a dinner party or in one of my <laughs> you know whatever I decide that everyone's making a mess, I've got to clean everything up. I would just play that in the background just to remind <laughs> myself that this whole domesticity thing is a farce you know like it doesn't matter and it's just a joke and you know i feel like it would be kind of domestic therapy for me that you know this whole staging of your home is is just a staging of your home it's not real you know yeah Yeah. yeah. that's good although this is mostly like we are a little bit overthinking this yeah i think this is mostly uh, an aesthetic experience of a show. Like, you have to really like the Amy Sedaris thing to get into it, or yeah. at least be tolerant of the Amy Sedaris thing. Um, I've described myself as more on the tolerant end of the spectrum. <laughs> I got into it, but, like, you got you got to be there for her to, to watch it, to make it through it. I should, we should also mention that there are some amazing guest stars. I mean, we've mentioned mm-hmm. Nick Kroll. Uh, you know, there's, like, people whose names I don't necessarily know, but I recognize their faces. Um there's a guy who's in Difficult People. There's a guy who was in 30 Rock. There's a guy who was in, you know, there's there's a lot of familiar guys yeah. from shows that I like. Comedy people love Comedy her. people. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And I, I, I didn't see him in any of the episodes I've seen, but Stephen Colbert, who was with her in Strangers with Candy, uh, is, is makes an appearance. Um, so there's lots of those kind of very popular, very elite comedy types in here as well. All right. Well, listeners, you should dip into At Home with Amy Sedaris. It is a trip to watch, and we would love to hear what you think about it. I should also, I just before we kind of we check out of this topic, it did strike me, and maybe this is just silly, but you know, there's in in the first episode, there's a kind of a scene. It's like a sexual scene, really, where she sort of gets off, um, and it is so the opposite of a Louis C.K. type scene. But maybe it's too difficult to 
express to talk about. But I don't know. Yeah, can you just say what it was? You can say what it was. Right. I'm really curious. Actually. So, so she she slides down a banister, and mm-hmm. like that's her boyfriend. She says, and and like it's a form of masturbation. But it's not uncomfortable. It's slightly weird and like strange. And she does do it in front of someone. But um, it it's it's just really different from the kind of scene that we are, you know, that would make us feel uncomfortable when a male comic was doing. It. Also, it's completely absurd. So that's that's an element too. Well, and it's a punchline because she, you know, she's told this other this visitor that she's in love and she's going to go show her you know, what she's, who she's in love with. And you think she's going to go up to the bathroom and find this man she's invited over for dinner. And instead it's the banister. Right, right. It's, it's strange. But okay. also, All right, well, not offensive. Well, go ahead. No, no. I finished now, really. But have. also not offensive. Yeah. Is that what you said? Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, listeners, um, we encourage you to dip into At Home with Amy Sedaris and let us know what you think of it. So we have our recommendations. But before that, let's thank our final sponsor. Uh, Before we get to recommendations, uh, I want to let everyone know that an old favorite Slate podcast is back. The spoiler specials went on hiatus for several years, but they're back, baby. Spoiler specials are not reviews of current movies. They're kind of post views. So like audio critiques that you're supposed to listen to after you've seen the film, though I have certainly used them as a way to kind of stay informed about movies that I really I'm interested in, but I don't really want to see, like, for example, Mother. Um, So Slate movie critic Dana Stevens leads these discussions um, of twist endings, plot holes, and kind of other secrets that you won't read in the reviews because there's an assumption that everybody who's listening is ready to be spoiled or has already seen the movie. And we sometimes talk about TV shows. Willa, Matthew Desam, and I talked about the great final season of Halt and Catch Fire a couple of episodes ago. So the kind of movies we're talking about are like It, Mother, Thor, Ragnarok, and then the next one will be Justice League. Uh, You'll find a new episode every other Friday, and they're really, really fun. That's Slate Spoiler Specials. All right, let's do our recommendations. June, why don't you go first? I want to recommend a show that's on Netflix. Season three just arrived, um, although it's a British BBC show, so there are just six episode seasons, and it's W1A, which is... Uh, a kind of something that we're familiar with from Britain. It's an excruciation comedy, somewhat like The Office, uh, but it's set at the BBC when the BBC is preparing for its um, license renewal. And it's just, it's so funny and wonderful and also just terrible. You know, it's about a kind of an office filled with jargon and just horrific people with terrible tells. And you will also hear lots of um, regional British accents, including my favourite, the Welsh woman, who begins almost every sentence with, I'm not being funny now, but... So uh, I, I, I do recommend W1A. It's got some amazing British actors in it too, and it's very, very funny. I'm not being funny, but it's very funny. <laughs> it's very funny. So what I'd like to recommend is a kind of a continuation of this endless conversation we've been having about sexual harassment. Sarah Wildman wrote a story in Vox, a blow-by-blow account of her sexual harassment by Leon Wieselt here at the New Republic, uh, which we discussed a couple of weeks ago. And then Peter Barnard wrote a story in The Atlantic, which I, I hadn't really read anything that sounded like it. It was a real reckoning with how he had benefited from male power and privilege at the New Republic. Uh, and so both of those as a twin set of pieces are really kind of alarming and amazing to read. 
And then my easier recommendation, The Female Persuasion by Meg Wolitzer, which is out in the UK, but maybe not out here for a few more months. And it's about female mentorship as well as other things. She's one of my favorite novelists. So um, I've only read the first chapter. I will really tell you what it's about uh, in the next couple of weeks, but um, but I encourage you. I love Meg Wolitzer, so I would like to have a broader conversation with all of our listeners about it. So I hope you all get a copy and read it. All right, Noreen. Um, so I'm going to recommend two things that are both being highly praised in the culture at large right now, but I want to throw in my personal endorsement, I think they are not being overpraised at all. Um, one is the movie Lady Bird, which is Greta Gerwig's directorial debut, which June, you talked about on the Culture Gab Fest, I think a week ago. I really loved this movie. Um, you know, some, A.O. Scott called it almost perfect, which actually might be a bridge too far, but it, <laughs> it, um, you know, it's set in the year that I graduated from high school, 2003. Wow. It's like, it's this, you know, suburban Catholic inflected girlhood. It's someone who like, loves her parents but is sort of cruel to them as a teenager and reckons with all the guilt of leaving for college it just like was very much in my zone and also funny and sweet and incredibly self-assured for a debut um so even if you did not graduate from high school <laughs> after a catholic girlhood in 2003 i think that you would like this movie a lot um and then the other thing that i want to recommend is sticky fingers which is joe hagan's absolutely fantastic uh biography of Jan Wenner, the founder of Rolling Stone. This is not necessarily an XXE kind of book, um, but the sexual politics of Rolling Stone are pretty interesting, and he explores them at length. There's sort of a, you know, it's super gossipy on Jan Wenner's sex life, um, but just the ambisexuality of everyone in that office and in the rock scene at that time is interesting, and particularly interesting to read against the backdrop of the sexual reckoning that we are having nationally right now with work people having you know relationships in the workplace and power dynamics and um it's just you know thinking about where some of these ideas uh, came from in our culture i think you can look at the at rolling stone and and the role played in the culture and then also um Hagen is good on the gender politics of the magazine itself and the ways that it was sexist. It's not like he doesn't hit you over the head with it, but it, he sort of glances at it in appropriate ways. But mostly it's just like a really fun book to read if you're – I mean, I'm not like one of those people who's super into uh, nostalgia about the rock of the 60s and 70s. But if you were, I imagine this would be great for that. I sort of come to it from a like magazines kind of point of view. Um, but just as a history of a time, it's fantastic. It's a real work of journalism and writing. And Jan Wenner has had his own moment here in the, in, it's not the sun, yeah. his own moment in the darkness in this sexual harassment moment. Well, there's like, a, yeah, yeah, there's a paragraph in this book where he's like, Jan regularly sexually harassed people in the office, but it just like <laughs> comes within the culture of everyone was sleeping with everyone. It was a different time, et cetera. And like something that we would understand now as sexual harassment at the time was just like, yeah, the boss propositioned me, you know? Um, but yes, there's a, a man who came forward and said that um, a gay man who came forward and, and said that um, Wenner pressured him about, I don't know, 10 or 20 years ago. God, that is an interesting distinction to read the book. And because when you read the account of that, you're like, what? It was yeah. literally like, I will offer you a contract at this magazine if you sleep with me or I won't if you don't. You know, it's like the yeah. most explicit, like, like legally perfect uh, example of sexual harassment. And yet in the book it's just like eh, another day in the well office, in the book you know? it's not presented as quid pro quo it's just like everyone is sleeping with everyone and jan was sort of sexually voracious is the way it's presented in the book hmm. wow 
Times have changed. Yes, indeed. All right. Well, that's our show for today. One more time, we urge you to call in for our annual Christmas call-in show. Christmas, I'm Jewish. Our (laughs) annual holiday call-in show. June, what is the call-in number? The call-in number is 929-266-8195. Yes, so please call in with your questions, but that's our show for today. We thank Rachel Withers and Daniel Schrader for producing our show this week. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai. We don't thank him enough anymore, so thank you, Steve. Listeners, you have been fabulous on our Facebook page, having a discussion about sexual harassment, chastising us, jumping in yourselves with your thoughts. Please keep that going. It's facebook.com slash doublexgapfest. We love to hear from you. So for June and Noreen, I am Hannah Rosen, and we will be back 